a young man, a young Muslim man, straps a bomb to his chest and walks into a Christian bookstore or a Jewish cafe and blows it up, kills himself and kills them because he believes what his Quran says, that he will receive rewards for it. On the other hand, there was a man in the 16th century who believed everybody should have a Bible. And so he translated the Bible from the original languages into English so everybody could have them. And for that, he was tied to a stake, choked, and burned to death. And of course, many others have had that. Last month, there was a 52-year-old elder of a church in the Philippines who was shot down on his porch because of his faith in Jesus Christ. What's the difference between the Muslim who blows himself up and the Christian who dies for his faith or her faith? What's the difference? Christianity Today said that 2015 was the deadliest year for Christians in the history. 2015, and I don't know what 2016 has in store. We're almost done with that, but I haven't seen that report. Christians are dying daily for their faith. Muslims are also blowing themselves up daily for their faith. What's the difference? That's what I want to look at today as we're going to be in John. And the, the point that I want to see is here's the big difference. The Christian is giving their life for something that's true, whereas the Muslim is giving their life for something that's a mistake. They're genuinely believing what they believe, but they're genuinely wrong. And so today, I want us to gain some ground on why we believe what we believe. Is it, is it reasonable or is it simply it just feels good? I want us to gain some understanding. We follow Jesus not because he's pragmatic, not because life gets better with him, but we follow Jesus because he's true. He truly is the only way to salvation, the only way. It's true. And not only is it true, God has made it reasonable to believe. I was talking to a, an older woman years ago, um, and we were talking about our faith, and it was a great conversation, but at, at some point I asked, so, so why do you believe what you believe? And she just said, I just believe. I said, well, okay, but why? I mean, why not something else? Oh, I don't know. Just, I just believe. I said, is that, is that enough? I, I mean, I said, what about the Muslim that just believes, or the Buddhist who just believes, or the new age person who just believes what they believe and it just feels good. The Mormon mantra is, it's a burning in my bosom. How do you know it's true? I have a burning in my bosom. Well, this woman was telling me basically the same thing. I have this warm feeling inside that it's true. And although I think the Holy Spirit does do that, and we'll talk about that a little bit, I think we need to understand why. It's not only is it, does it feel right, but it's reasonable. The, the reason so many young people leave the church when they graduate from high school and move on is because they then enter a world where people challenge them and they say the Bible has contradictions and they, they attack their faith and they walk away because they weren't ready for that. And the studies actually showed that those kids didn't walk away in college. They walked away in junior high and high school when they were in church and they were asking questions and not getting answers or they weren't asking the questions and they were just being told the Bible says so, so just believe it because the Bible says so. Instead of saying the Bible says so, and we should believe what the Bible says. And here's some reasons that you can, you can believe it. So we're going to look today because Jesus last week, by the way, we're in John chapter six. Um, if you're in one of these thick Bibles, it's page 986. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one 
in a box in front of you, grab that, use that. If you're going to use your phone or something, that's great. We're using the ESV version. But we're in John chapter 6. And last week, last week I think was kind of heavy. <laughs> last week we saw Jesus basically defending his deity. He said, as the Father is working, so I am working. Basically making himself equal to God. And the people knew that. They said, you're making yourself equal to God. And they wanted to kill him for it. And then he doubles down. And he really gets into it. He says, as the father, the father doesn't judge, I judge. So he sets himself as the judge of humanity. He says, as the Father has given me to give life, I give life to whomever I will. And he goes on to say, I will raise the dead. I mean, he is setting himself up as God. He can forgive sins. He can raise the dead. He can do all these things. And now he's going to defend it. He doesn't just say it and go, believe it, because it feels right. He now defends it, and he's gonna, it's kind of like he's on trial. Later, he will be on trial, and he will die. But here, his identity is on trial, and he gives four witnesses to support. This is important for us because Jesus never said, just believe because it feels good. Faith is reasonable. Here's something that actually this morning as I was praying over this, so often we think faith is a blind thing. So just close your eyes and step. That's not faith. Faith is doing what God told you to do, believing that what he said is true. So God tells us to live life for him and it's worth it. There's benefits and he'll be there with us. And so as we believe that, we can step forward. But it's not a blind walking. I just feel like doing this because it's good for you. No, it's doing what God has told us to do. So faith is not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. And as we understand some of the reasons, trust me, God is a mystery. We're not going to understand it all. So we're not going to sit in a circle and try and understand everything, but we can understand enough that the things that are difficult, then we can just trust what the Bible says. Um, things like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons equal. I don't get it fully, but I trust the Bible's true because everywhere else it proves that it is. So let's look, please, at John chapter uh, 5, sorry, John chapter 5. And we're going to see Jesus giving witnesses, witnesses to his claim, starting in verse 30. Now, if your Bible is like mine, there's a break between 29 and 30. Um, but 30 really is summing up what he just said before. And he says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he sums up what he said before. I am God's ambassador. I speak what he tells me to speak. I do what he tells me to do. And I judge and my judgment is just. So he sums it up and then he gives witnesses. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. That's just kind of common understanding in, in any culture ever. If somebody testifies to themselves, I am this and they have no other support. You don't really believe that. If somebody steps onto the stand and says, I'm innocent because I was over there, but nobody can corroborate that, that's not a trustworthy witness. Now, Jesus is trustworthy, but in a human standpoint, he needs other witnesses. And so he kind of throws us a bone by giving us this first witness in verse 32. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Verse 33, you sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. So Jesus refers to John the Baptist and, and he kind of brackets it. He's like, I don't really need man to witness. I mean, God doesn't really need uh, us to witness, but he says, but so that you will believe, here's 
here's a witness. And what he's referring to is John the Baptist. Um, in John chapter 1, uh, what is it exactly? John chapter 1, verse 30 and 34. John 1, 30 and 34. Now, John the Baptist had been around a little while. He was baptizing. People were coming to, to listen to him. He was a, a new, kind of a new message. People were excited. And here in John 1, verse 30, John the Baptist says this of Jesus. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, verse 32. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. So John the Baptist is the first witness. And John was, for the people there, he was a valuable witness because people had been going to see John and John in his humility was teaching repentance of sins and baptism, but he was also saying somebody else is coming greater. And when that one came, that was Jesus. He pointed at them. And we can understand this somewhat. Um, if you need something done. So we had a, a septic tank issue a while back and I've never had a septic tank issue. And so I called my friend, Tony Keel, who works for Jackrabbit Plumbing. And I said, Tony, who should I call to deal with my septic? I wanted a reference. I wanted somebody in the field who could point to the best or the most useful or the you know, cheapest price. And so he said, oh, you need to call so-and-so. They're the best ones. And I could trust Tony because he's in that, that field. He knew what he was talking about. This is kind of the similar thing. John the Baptist was a recognized teacher. His witness was valuable. And so John points to Jesus and that is trustworthy. But again, God doesn't really need him because he is God. Now look at verse 34. The first witness is John the Baptist. The second witness we're about to see is Jesus's works. Verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, still talking about John, and you were willing to rejoice a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the second witness you see is Jesus's works. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people. And if Jesus hadn't done any works, they could have spoken up right then and said, what are you talking about? What works? But he had done his works publicly. So far in John, we saw him turn water into wine, which was not a public miracle. But we also saw him heal a lame man. At this point in his ministry, he had done many other miracles also that aren't even recorded. John says that later in the book, that if, if everything was recorded that he'd done, it would fill up the world with books. So he did many signs. So the people knew the signs, his miraculous signs, his healing his teaching with authority, that was one of the things Jesus would teach. And they'd say, where did this guy get his authority? Um, we're going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks. That's kind of exciting. Jesus taught different than the other rabbis. The other rabbis would always quote others. They didn't have any authority on their own. Jesus came not quoting anybody, just saying, I say, and it's true. So he, he taught with authority. He went into the temple, made a whip and cleared it out. He, his works, miracles, teaching, going into the temple, it was different. And he said, those are a testimony to me. Those are a witness. And he proved these things. Um, one of, as you saw before, one of his claims was that he would raise the dead. 
And Jesus, in his lifetime, raised three people from the dead, all of them publicly, all of them publicly. Lazarus was the last one he raised before he raised himself. But he raised Lazarus, and when he raised Lazarus, he had everybody else do the work. If you remember the story, Lazarus is dead for three days, three or four days, and he was in the tomb. And so he comes and he says, open up the tomb. And they say, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> no, he's going to smell by this point. And he says, go open the tomb. And so Jesus just stood there. They went, open the tomb. Jesus spoke, said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus was all wrapped up already. So, I mean, just picture the scene. Lazarus didn't come walking out. He came hopping out, even with his head wrapped up. And when he comes out, Jesus says, go unwrap him. So the people then went and unwrapped him. And after that, it became, he became kind of a spectacle. So after that, people would travel from Jerusalem to where Lazarus was just to see this man who was raised. From, he became very famous. And so that was one of the works, one of those things done publicly. Um, remember that this book is written after AD 70. So you may be thinking, well, those are works that haven't happened yet, but he's referring to them. But when John wrote this book, they had. And John knew that the readers of this book could, could refer back to those works as well. But anyway, Jesus' works pointed to him, and he did them publicly. So when he says, they witnessed to me, that's valuable. Everybody said, they knew, they knew it. They knew these, these works he had been doing. Um, now, the question, though, is who can do miraculous works like that? Either somebody doing it for God or somebody doing it under the power of the enemy. Uh, remember last week we saw that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. A good man doesn't claim to be God. Um, and so people that say, oh, I think he was a prophet, a good man, a good teacher, um, they're, they're just mistaken because he couldn't be just a good man and claim to be God. No good man claims to be God. And so he, either he's a liar, he knows he's not God and he's claiming to be, which, which means we can't listen to anything he says, or he's crazy, he thinks he is, but he's not, or he's actually Lord. We can actually rule out the crazy because a, pra a crazy person isn't going to be able to do miracles. But Lord will, God himself, or somebody working on God's authority, or somebody working under demonic power. This week I was actually reading in Exodus. And if you remember, Aaron, before Pharaoh, throws down his rod and it turns into a snake. But the, the wise men there with Pharaoh, they do the same thing. That was not in God's power. They did a miraculous sign. It, there's kind of a side note, sermon within a sermon. If you see somebody doing a miraculous sign, which is going to happen sometime in our future, that doesn't mean they're from God. So it's either from God or from the devil. And that's what the Pharisees knew. In Matthew 12, 24, they say he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So they attributed his power to the devil. So either, it narrows it down, either he is God or he's the devil. But then he refers to the third witness. And the third witness is the Father himself. In verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The Father himself. In Matthew 3, 16 through 17, the Father speaks out of heaven. When Jesus is baptized, and he comes out, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That is the father's witness. Again, at the transfiguration, which there was only a couple there. Not, not everybody saw that. But Jesus was with Moses and Elijah, and he's glowing. He's actually seen in his glory. And the father speaks, this is my son. So the father himself bore witness. 
audibly two times that people could refer to. But I think there's something else here. Um, because what we don't see quite yet is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Some would say actually earlier when he says there's another that bears witness and then he talks about John, that other might be the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think he's pointing that out because as he goes on and you see, Jesus says, you don't have his word abiding in you. And we're going to get into the word there. That's going to be kind of our main application today. But the Father does bear witness to our spirit. So this is where we do get into that. It feels right. You know, there's something that speaks to my heart. The Holy Spirit does do that. The Holy Spirit does convict hearts. That's his job, convict hearts of sin. The Father does testify to us internally to the Son. So as you see, Jesus is going and speaking, and many don't believe, many walk away, but some do. Some do. Those who really are seeking the Father, they find him through Jesus. Remember Jesus last week, he said, if you don't believe the Father, you don't believe me. If you don't love the Father, you won't love me. If you love me, you'll love the Father. It goes together. And so the true God-fearers, those are Jews who believed in Yahweh, the true God-fearers who really were loving God, when they met Jesus, they went, bing, that's it. They knew it. Uh, remember Lydia later, uh, when Paul goes and he meets Lydia by a river and there's this gathering of women who are having a little church service um, and they're God-fearers. And when Paul walks down, he's basically like, oh, who you're worshiping? Jesus. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> they, they got it. They were ready for it. And so when people are ready, really seeking, they will find. That's what the Bible says. He who seeks finds. And so I think that's some of the witness of the Father, that he who's seeking will find if you Remember, and we're going to see this later, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, what does, he, what does he say when he's the good shepherd? He says, those who are my sheep recognize my voice. And so there's some, there is something a little bit mystical there, honestly, that when Jesus speaks, when people hear the word, if they're going to belong to Jesus, they recognize it. And so I do think that's part of the Father's witness. And he goes on now to talk about Scripture a little bit. Um, he says their word is not abiding uh, God's word is not abiding in them. Uh, that's in verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The people he's speaking to, they knew the Bible. They knew their Bible. They knew the scriptures, the holy scriptures. All of the Old Testament was accepted at this point and studied and taught. They knew it, but yet they didn't recognize Jesus when he showed up because they didn't have his word abiding in them. Here's, let me just sum all that up very quickly. These people, they were worshiping their religion. They weren't following the one true God. For them, it was about religion. It was about tradition. It was about doing the things that the law says to do, following it exactly. And here's the thing, it puts them in control. If you come, to, you come to me later and you say, well, what do I need to do to be right with God? And I give you a list of 10 things to do, you'll be like, sweet, I can do that. I'm in control. And you go out and you try and do those. You, we like that, don't we? We like control. But the thing about true Christianity is we don't have control. <laughs> it, true Christianity is a surrender and a releasing. These religious people, they were very religious. And they knew the Bible. They would whoop us in a sword drill. You know what a sword drill is? Maybe you were ever in that where somebody will start a verse and the first one to stand up has to complete the verse and the reference. And I was never very good at it. Um, but these people could do that. They were, the, they were the people that you'd have a Bible study with and they could quote a whole passage to you and where it came from and all the Greek words and what it all means. 
but in their heart, they didn't have love for God. That's who he's speaking to. And the danger, this is kind of a little sermon in the sermon, but, but the danger here is we can fall into that too, can't we? We can fall into religion, uh, studying the Bible for knowledge's sake, trying to put God in our pocket, learning enough that we have control rather than just surrendering and giving God control. And that's the state of these people, that their whole religion, the whole law for 1,500 years had been pointing to the Messiah coming. Here he shows up and they don't recognize him because they were never looking for him to begin with, really. They just wanted to be in control. In Matthew 7, 22 to 23, says this, Jesus says this, on that day, meaning in the end, in the judgment, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I share this because it's in here. <laughs> this isn't our main point for the day. This is a, a little bit of, of a tangent, but it's right here. There is a danger, and it's a scary danger, that we can grow up in the church, we can be in the church our whole lives, we can know the Bible better than anybody and not know God. Is that scary? <laughs> Karen Hudnell, they're not here today, but she came in a couple weeks ago, and, and she's reading a book, and I don't remember, it's by Francis Chan. And she walked in, she's like, this is scary stuff. Like, we can, we can actually think we're saved. We can truly believe we're saved and in the end be judged for our sin because we never were. She's like, how do we know the difference? And that's a great question. How do we know? And I would say this. Does all your studying, all your religion, your following Jesus lead you to be more like Jesus? Do you desire what he desires? There's, there's evidence in your heart. Do you love others? In 1 John, John explains it very well. He says, if you claim to love God but you hate your brother, you're a liar. So, do you, do you have compassion for others? Do you really want to invest in the kingdom work? Or is it, is it duty? So that's kind of the evidence. Look at your heart. Look at your heart. What do you actually want? Do you want what God wants? Now, he refers to the scriptures. And this is what I want to focus on. This is what I, we got about 20 minutes. And I want to focus on this. And here's why. Because I think this is the most applicable to us. Did you see John the Baptist? Say, there's Jesus. I didn't either. <laughs> but who Jesus is speaking to, they did. A lot of them saw that, so that was valuable. Did you see Jesus' works? Neither did I. <laughs> did you hear the voice from heaven say, this is my son? I didn't either. But where do we read all of that? In scripture. <laughs> so for us, to a certain extent, all of these four witnesses, they can all be condensed into one witness, scripture. And if we can't believe this, we're hosed. And I'll tell you, liberal Christianity has done destructive work against the Bible as they've started to go in and go, oh, well, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean what it actually says. That was just cultural. And so that's where we get the liberal church who will deny that we can trust everything in here as written and they can mix tradition and culture with the Bible. And that's why some of these denominations, the Presbyterian for one, has gone off the deep end with denying this. Now, First Presbyterian Church in town here, I don't know if you're familiar with them, they broke off from the Presbyterian denomination because they looked at that and they said, we can't follow that. We trust the Bible. And so they did the hard work of making that split. That's what, that's what a faithful follower does is they, they follow the Bible. And so I want to look at this fourth witness the scriptures to see can we understand this 
Um, maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard this, that the Bible is a historic book written by men, so it's fallible, with a lot of discrepancies in it. Um, and there's a, a lot of parts that disagree because it was copied. And so we, we don't have very many copies, and they're all really old. And so you make a copy of a copy of a copy, and what you get isn't the same as the original. I thought about doing the telephone game. You remember that game? And like start it here and make it go all the way through, but that would take too long. Um, but in the telephone game, it changes along the way, especially if you get somebody in the middle that's a joker. <laughs> and it gets to the other side, and it's not what it started out to be. And so that's kind of the claim with the Bible is, yeah, it might have been good at the beginning, but we can't trust it anymore. A copy of a copy. Anybody see the movie Multiplicity? You should go watch it. Michael Keaton, it's great. He gets this machine. It's kind of a tangent. He gets this machine, and he can clone himself so that he can do what he wants to do in golf, and the other person can do all the work. Um, so he does that. But then the clone decides, well, we need somebody to do housework. And so the clone go makes a clone of the clone, and there's something missing there. <laughs> And so there's, that's kind of the idea, though, that a copy of a copy isn't quite as clear as the original. And that's what we're going to hear. And this is the type of thing, young people who are in here, listen, this is the type of thing that if you go to college, you're going to get this. People are going to challenge you saying you can't trust your Bible. You can't trust this. And we need to understand that we can. Um, I just want to make very clear here so that we understand common ground believes in the infallibility and the inerrancy of scripture. It is inspired by God. God breathed. We're going to see some of these verses. It is without mistakes in the original. So there's a little work sometime to make sure we have what's originally written, but it's without mistakes in the original and it will never fail. Nobody is ever going to find a problem. There's never going to be an archeological discovery uh, that disagrees with the Bible. In fact, the opposite has happened many, many times. And so we believe that this is the word of God. That's why when you come on a Sunday, when I teach or anybody else teaches, it's going to be out of this. And if you notice, it's typically verse by verse. Now we do, you know, we'll have a topical series, but it'll be based on a passage. And the main point of the passage is what we teach because this is the word of God, not my opinion, not somebody else's opinion. This is the word. And, and we believe that. And so a couple questions that we want to answer as we look at scripture. What is scripture? This is for you so you can defend it. This should also give you some security that your Bible is good. Scripture is what you are holding right now. Old Testament and New Testament, all of it. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that's Paul writing saying, all scripture is inspired by God, meaning God breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul was referring to the Old Testament. Testament. All of it. Genesis to Malachi was scripture and it's still valuable, but it's God breathed as if God spoke and it landed on the page. Sometimes that is what God did. You know, remember Moses with the tablets? <laughs> God spoke and it appeared on the tablet. He broke those. So he had to chisel the next ones. But sometimes God spoke and said, thus saith the Lord, go say what I say. And a prophet would just go say what he said. Other times, God would inspire somebody, and so what you would have written is their personality, but it's still God's word. So you see this in Paul's writings. You get a good idea of Paul's personality. He was fiery. He was passionate. Uh, he was tough. But what he said was, was still inspired by God. Um, second, so we, we see all of the Old Testament scripture. Um, almost every book, I think it's every book but Esther, is actually quoted in our New Testament. 
So every book is validated in the New Testament as scripture because Jesus quotes it or Paul or Peter or somebody else quotes it. But now the New Testament, 2 Peter 1.21, Peter says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's referring again, mainly to the Old Testament prophets and that it's God spoken, but he's also referring to Paul's writings. So uh, in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. He quotes Paul and he quotes the Old Testament all in one. And he says, this is scripture. He says, um, here's his exact words. As he does in all his letters, speaking of Paul, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So Peter says, Paul's tough to get. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter refers to Paul as scripture. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 refers to Luke as scripture. So he quotes Luke as well as Old Testament. Um, 27 books in the, in the New Testament were accepted as Bible. Uh, Bible just means book, but were accepted as scripture very, very early on. Don't listen to anybody that tells you it wasn't until the fourth century that we got our Bible. We got it early on. It was later on where they said, okay, Let's try and narrow this down because other books were rising up. Hey, we have the gospel of Thomas. We have the gospel of so-and-so. And they said, those aren't scripture. I said, uh-huh, we want them to be. That's why they got together and they said, okay, let's decide. You know, and they had strict criteria. And one of those was that they were accepted early on. And so what we have is trustworthy. Um, side note, if you're sitting there going, what about the Apocrypha? That wasn't until the 16th century. The Catholics decided to add those in. Those were not accepted by the early church. So we would say that what we have in your Bible here is scripture. Um, God breathes, valuable, trustworthy. Now, how do we know though that it is the word of God? It claims to be the word of God in there. By the way, there's a handout on the back that has a lot more details. So check that out. If this is exciting to you, grab it. If it's not exciting to you, grab it anyway, because you might talk to somebody that it is exciting. No, I'm serious. <laughs> you might get talking to somebody and they start asking. You're like, I read about that. Or I have this pamphlet I can look at. So those are on the back, but, but look at those. Um, the internal evidence for the Bible. Uh, it was written on three different continents over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. One message. By the way, it was also written in three different languages. I'm not sure I mentioned that. But yet you pull it all together and it doesn't disagree. That's miraculous. So it's consistent. It's consistent. We, uh, I mentioned the idea of the telephone game and the manuscript. That's one of the big challenges. Uh, how do you know, just now think with me, how do you know, how do you discover if you have many copies of something, which is the original? Just think for a little bit. Uh, let's think together. A, a grandma. Grandma gives a recipe for gumbo. Callie's grandma makes this delicious gumbo. Uh, so gumbo, and all the cousins now have the recipe because we've all at some point said we want the recipe. But in, in, as time goes, sometimes you change it, right? So you make the gumbo. You're like, ah, it's a little spicy. We're going to take this part out or whatever. And so you may adjust it. How can you get back to the original gumbo recipe? Think, think critically. Well, grandma's dead. <laughs> so you can't ask grandma. But, or say grandma loses hers and she wants it back. Gather all of the copies up, bring them together, and see the differences. Guess what? Everybody's not going to change the same thing. 
And so you find what is consistent and all, oh, this one's different. So we know that's something different. Okay, throw that one out. Okay, this one is different in this area, but all the rest are the same. So by that, you can pretty much narrow down what was original. It's the same way with scripture. Yes, we do have many copies, but we also can trust the copies were made. That's kind of a fun study. I don't want to get into it, but the way they copied was meticulous. They would count the letters and they would count to the middle of the book. They knew the middle and they would count the letters backwards. And if they didn't line up, they would throw it out and they would start over. So they were very meticulous in their copying and they would preserve them. But we have all those. And are there mistakes in our manuscripts? Are there discrepancies? There's thousands. <laughs> There's thousands. But at, that's right. Textual variance is what it's called. There's thousands of them. But they're mostly spelling or style or punctuation. And none of them change anything about the message. And so we can take all of these and we can look at them and we can compare. And it's fairly easy actually to find the ones that are wrong. It's fairly easy to, to land, okay, this isn't in most of the copies. It's just in this one from over here. So that wasn't original. That was added in or whatever. But again, even those things that are added in, none of them change the story. Uh, kind of a side note, we're not going to teach John chapter 8. Flip over there. This is just one of those examples. John 8, the woman caught in adultery. You know that story? Not original. <laughs> not original. And most of your Bibles will say that. They'll have a bracket saying this is not in the original manuscripts. Uh, our best five Greek manuscripts don't have this. Our oldest best five don't have this story. Therefore, it shouldn't be in there. But in your English Bible, it'll tell you that. So we can trust it. But even that story doesn't change anything. Even that story doesn't change the message of the gospel or God. So my point is we can, we can trust what we have. The copies are, are good. Now, here's the other aspect, the manuscript evidence. Um, and I was going to put it up on, on screen, but um, David was out of town. And, of course, our, our media shout. We're going to probably change that. It has issues. But look at this. When you get a chance, grab this as you go out. Um, because one of the things that they'll say is, the Bible's really old and we don't have a lot of copies, but the fact is actually different. Um, so who killed Caesar? Here's one of those. Remember back in, uh, I don't know the year, but before the turn of the century, who killed Caesar? Brutus. How do you know? Because it was in a play that Shakespeare. It was in a play that Shakespeare. <laughs> actually, that document that says Brutus killed, there's only like three copies. But everybody just accepts it as, as true. Um, if you'll look on here, you'll see here Plato. Um, there's seven manuscripts of Plato. Caesar, there's ten, so there's ten copies of those. Um, and the oldest is 900 years after the original is written. Um, as you go through and you look at all of these, compare it to the Bible. And we have, this is, um, this is in here somewhere. Um, this one says, for the New Testament alone, we have four to 5,000 copies. Four to 5,000 copies. The second in line, just so you know, ancient manuscript is uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, um, Homer's. There's, I think, 450 or so copies. Next in line is the Bible with over 5,000. <laughs> ancient. And, and then you add in, we have many others, too. We have, from the first century, we have the, the writings of the church fathers that quote the Bible. And so we have thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts that we can compare. And so just the fact that we've, that, that many have been saved, it points to God has still been working. This is what stuck out to me. Even this morning, as I was looking at this, God has continued to be at work with his word. 
preserving it so we can trust it. Why do you think, you add it all up in other languages and all this that we can add together, it's over 20,000 ancient manuscripts. That's ridiculous. Tell me that's not God saying, yeah, I'm just going to preserve this. A little story, maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in 1947. Right about that time, liberal scholars were gaining traction saying we can't trust the Bible because of the manuscripts. They find the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, for me, this is, I see God's hand in here. Oh, you guys are going to challenge the Bible. Let me just give you this. They find the Dead Sea Scrolls, many copies of the Bible, one in particular, the book of Isaiah. There was an entire manuscript of the book of Isaiah from before the first century. I think it was like BC 100, 100 BC. The most recent one they had before they found that one was 900 AD. A thousand years difference, basically. A thousand years. They take this one, they translate it, they compare it to the one that we have. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect comparison. It's kind of like God says, okay, you're going to challenge it. Let me just give you this one. And they compare. And it's, and it's stood up. It's valuable. We can trust what we have. If you're wondering why we're getting into this <laughs> or why I'm, I'm going so deep into scripture, the point is Christianity, true biblical faith is not like any other faith. We can trust the Bible that we have written. That's why we use it. That's why we stake our lives on it. That's why people have died for it and die for it every single day. Compare it to the Quran. Here's what they did. Within a couple decades of the original being written, they had many copies and they disagreed. Here's what they did. They picked one, destroyed the rest. They picked one, destroyed the rest. The opposite is the church preserves them all, compares. We can have confidence that when we are killed for our faith and that day is going to come, we're dying for what's true. We can stake our life on the Bible because it's true. Not because it feels good. Not because we're going to get rich. <laughs> not because we'll be healthy. But because it's true. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died for your sins. You, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, can have life. We are plan A. The church is plan A to change the world, to bring life to the world. There is no plan B. The Bible tells me so. <laughs> and we can trust it. We can trust it. God has miraculously preserved his word. Do you believe it? If you came in here today wondering or just thinking, you know, Christianity is my tradition, you need to understand this is valuable. If, now, if you need more info, this was, I mean, this was so high level, just boop, boop, boop. Um, there's a couple books in the back, uh, A Case for Christ and A Case for Faith, written by Lee Strobel. Great books if you want to go deeper. And there's lots of others too. But if this is something you want to study, uh, study it. Get into it because it gives you confidence when you get into those conversations. And by the way, why are we here? What's our, what's our mission? To expand the kingdom. Meaning we better be getting into conversations about Jesus all the time. If we're getting into conversations about Jesus, we're getting into conversations about the Bible. We're going to get challenges. We need to be able to back it up. And so... Grab the handout out there. That one's really cool. I had Callie proofread it yesterday. Um, and I'm like, just skim it. You know, tell me if there's something missing. She's like, I can't. It's so, she was really getting into reading every little piece of it because it is interesting. But let's, let's stand on what's true and let's understand it. So this is kind of a, it's a call to our intellect a little bit. But let's think about it so that we can pass it on. What we have is worthwhile. And it's based on Jesus. Jesus is who he claimed to be. Let me, uh, let me pray. 
And we're going to close in worship. We're going to have three more songs as we worship the Jesus who is true, the God who is true. Father in heaven, um, forgive me for my fallibility. Um, as I study this, it's overwhelming the evidence. And so I, I'm forced to choose what to share and what not to share. And, and forgive me for not being able to communicate as clearly what the truth is about you. Um, but I pray, Holy Spirit, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us the resources we need to be confident in your Bible. And I pray that all of us here, here at Common Ground, and those not here today, those, those home, those on vacation, that we would all be confident in your word, we would live in obedience, and we would be quick to share it. We would be quick to, to point people to your word. God, as I studied this throughout history, many people have tried to destroy your word. It happened in the third century where one of the emperors destroyed. They, they said, we're going to get rid of all Christians and all Bibles. They burned everything they could find. But yet within just a few years, Christianity was the, the religion of Rome. God, Voltaire said that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would be no more and Christians would be no more. 50 years later, his house was being used to print Bibles. People over and over have tried to destroy you, but it only causes us to grow and get stronger. I thank you that we can trust you. I pray that we would be part of that tradition, that we would not be part of a tradition that just sits and is comfort, comfortable, that, that uh, is secure in our American wealth. But I pray we would be part of the tradition that expands your kingdom, that even suffers for it, that we're willing to give our lives for what is true. Jesus, because you gave your life for us. We love you. Be honored and glorified as we close and worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.